The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We uh, just... We, we love getting down and talking about the nitty gritty of history. If you've been following our podcast at all, you know that we, we like the details. We like to dive into the stories and, and to see things that perhaps the wider church isn't super aware of. Uh, that's that's the, the, the summation of our goal here with this podcast. And today we have somebody who honestly, I... Uh, in, in, in reading through the, the just massive amount of uh, work and experience uh, that our guest is bringing to the table, I'm excited to see uh, what we can dive in here today. So, Michael, uh, you've known Dr. Rock a little bit longer, obviously, than I have. Uh, give, us, give us a quick, uh, quick update on who we're going to be talking with today. Well, just a warm welcome to Dr. Rock to, to be here on with us. He is a uh, veteran uh, church administrator, pastor, uh, author. Uh, probably most recently, what is of interest for our listeners in this podcast is he wrote a book called Protest and Progress, which is, uh, I believe, the most extensive, most thorough book on the history of race relations in Adventism that I know of. And so I am just delighted that uh, he has written this book. I've had my honor students at Southwestern actually read that book, and we've actually talked with him in the past uh, a little bit, and I'm not going to do justice because we could, we could go on, wax on with uh, his accomplishments and contributions, uh, but, but some of them uh, include being the president of Oakwood University, our flagship um, one of our flagship educational institutions uh, located in uh, Alabama from 1971 to 1985. And then from 1985 until his retirement in 2002, he served as a general vice president of the, of the World Church. And so uh, he holds degrees from Oakwood with a, a bachelor's in theology. He has a master's degree in sociology from the University of Detroit, as well as a demon and a PhD in religious ethics from Vanderbilt. He's also the author of numerous other articles as well as books. Uh, and I could go on, but I just want to say uh, we have someone that's both eminently qualified as well as committed to the church. He loves this church as few people do. And so it, it just warms my heart to be able to have a conversation together this afternoon uh, with Dr. Rock. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Rock, for being with us. My pleasure, gentlemen. I am honored to be your guest and looking forward to the conversation. Good. Well, yeah. hey, I'm I, I got questions. I know Michael's got questions. I just cut you off. Michael, what, what were you going to jump in on there? Oh, I was just going to go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've been looking over some of the, uh, the the work you've done, Dr. Rock, and there's there's just so much to pick from. And I had to I had to kind of just think on with all the different areas you served in the church, how, how would you describe some of your overall goals in uh, the last six decades in all the different areas that you, that you uh, worked in? Goals? Yeah, just some of the... Some of the things that you felt like, no matter which part of the church you served in, these things you wanted to address, you wanted to to improve upon, you wanted to push forward. Um, what were some of the, the the big ticket goals that you felt you could you could uh, make a difference in? Well, of course, I retired from active service in 
2013, 2013, after having retired in 2002, concluding 50 years of denominational employment uh, here in Las Vegas from 2022 to 20 uh, to 219. I pastored the church, one of the churches here, uh, the Black American congregation, the larger of the two in Las Vegas. And after that, I commuted in pastorate of uh, the Beacon Light Seventh-day Adventist Church in Phoenix. So you might say that in my latter years, my goal and my latter years of service, I mean official service, including this retirement pastorate, uh, these two retirement pastorates, was that of fulfilling my, my boyhood dream and my wish through all those 30 years of administration to be a pastor again. I, I, I was as, wondering about that, yeah. As president of Oakwood for 13 years, 14 years, followed by these 16 years at the General Conference, that's 30 years. I assure you, every one of them I, I enjoyed but always with the gnawing longing to pastor again. I love, in fact, my work with the students showed it. Uh, they knew I had a soft heart. They knew I was a softy and I had this pastoral kind of relationship to their problems and to them individually. And even at the general conference, as the brethren discussed all kinds of issues, uh, what was happening with the independent denominator or the independent groups uh, that were pestering the church in various ways, some of them anyways, uh, and what was happening. And I was tasked to meet with a number of um, smaller groups in the church who were deemed a bit heretical and like offshoots, it was, I was the, I was the VP that was sent to meet with them. And I had to do all of that for years and to help solve problems. And whenever we got to the women's ministries issue of women being ordained, I was the vice president that had to chair the meetings in, in general conference sessions. They picked on me like that, but I always went about it with the idea that the pastorate needed to be understood more than it was and perhaps is, and that more needed to be done to equip and encourage the pastorate. And I should say that if there was ever, if there were a stream of, of interest underlying and undergirding that had to do with function, not mm. doctrine and all that, but it would have been to do what I could to help make pastoral ministry better understood and more enjoyable. Huh, yeah, I wondered about that. That was one of the things actually that was in my list of questions. Going from 30 years in the administrative level in various capacities, education and, and church, uh, large church leadership, going back to the local pastorate, it's, it's, it's an interesting jump uh, and not an uncommon one, obviously, for a lot of uh, folks that are looking towards retirement, but you bring to those local churches 
this very, very large sense of what the mission of the Adventist church is. And I just felt like, you know, going back to after all those administrative roles, how do you see things differently then with the local church uh, having this much bigger picture of what church is, what the Adventist church is? Yeah. Well, I began my ministry in 1952 when I left Oakwood College um, and went into the South Atlantic Conference in the Southern Union um, and found myself involved in a three-district church grouping in Sumter, Columbia, South Carolina, and Augusta, Georgia, where the social scene was quite quite simple in terms of what people did, how they felt, uh, the good old Southern hospitality. And uh, even after that, in Florida, which I was asked to, uh, where I was asked to move in 56 from the Carolina, Georgia district to Winter Park, Orlando, uh, Popka, Sanford, Florida, had four churches. And uh, from there down to Miami in 56, 57, where I had Fort Lauderdale, Dania, Miami, Homestead, and Key West, all mine at once. Wow. That was the district they gave me. These were the early days of Black conferences, and pastors had a number of, of, of cities, sometimes in different states. Now it's different, obviously, but more directly to your question, in that area of the country, I found that the, the members were very, very um, faithful and loyal to their pastor. They brought us fruit on Sabbath, oranges down in Florida and grapefruit and from their gardens in, in Sumter, South Carolina and some of the more rural areas at that time. And the pastor was, the, pastor was, uh, the priest. The pastor was not only prophetic, and you had to be, of course, but more like a priest where you were honored and um, you, were, you were asked to their homes and invited and a member of the family. Now, um, when I returned to the pastorate, and I did a short stint, uh, after Oakwood, well, I shouldn't say after, but just before Oakwood, I did a short stint in New York City, having left the Ministerial Association in the Southern Union. So I had, after I left the pastorate in 67, and my first work outside of the pastorate was in in departmental work for a short time, about three years in the Southern Union, got a taste of non-pastoral service. Then I went to New York City for a year and a half in Harlem where I was born, then to Oakwood, and that began my 30 years of uninterrupted administration. And when I got from there, which ended with GC vice presidency, I found that the pastorate was much more educated 
that the level of education had risen, the level of sophistication had risen, mm. and uh, the, the threat in the minds of some pastors at least, the challenge maybe is a better word, that um, these educated and more sophisticated members or this more sophisticated membership uh, presented in terms of how the church should be run. People didn't depend on the pastor quite as much as they did 30 years earlier. Mm. There was more ability for members to handle the finances, to counsel, and um, to do the investigations for construction and to handle the construction so that the pastor could no longer or no longer have to be depended upon for so much. And that meanwhile, there was um, an understanding that the pastor didn't need to have any fruit brought over from their gardens. And maybe it's because they didn't have gardens, but the pastor was no longer the recipient of, of all of this, these niceties and um, special days, pastor's days and birthday celebrations. There was some of that, but people began to, I think, think about the pastor more as a professional serving mm. as much as being a priest to whom uh, the tithe was being consumed and yeah, were yeah. part of the, this big family. Huh. That's an interesting shift. I mean, I grew up in some of those years, but my pastoring years, probably I, it was already happening like that for us. So uh, I think some of the things you're describing, I never saw in the pastorate, honestly. It was always uh, much, <laughs> well, much more as you're describing it now. <laughs> yeah, well, back in those days, you, yeah. you, you, in the 50s, and that's when I entered the ministry, mm -hmm. but I knew about it even before that, because I had observed some things in the churches and with the experience of church members and pastors where I lived. But certainly there was a much more sophisticated and uh, a less, I don't want to say concerned, but a less demonstrably concerned membership with regard to the care and feeding of the pastor. They felt you were being taken care of and things were going to be all right. And a challenge, a challenge to bring them in and realize that you're not running everything, but you've got a lot of help. So let's harness this expertise and put it to work in ways that were not available when I first went into ministry. So Dr. Rock, one of the things I know that struck my students when we were uh, talking together about your book and everything else is, and talk about changes over time and ministry. Uh, but one of the things is, you know, you've also experienced firsthand, um, you've written a book on the history of race relations, race relations in the church, but you've also experienced it. And you shared some of those stories. Would, would you be willing to kind of share a little bit, um, a little bit of the behind the scenes that eventually, you know, uh, would therefore, um, I imagine at some point, you, you, when you started out in ministry, you never saw yourself writing a book <laughs> about protest in progress. No. 
Well, really, my experience that I guess shines through my lifelong experience mm. in the book Protest in Progress yeah. um, begins in Harlem, where I was born in 1930, where for years, as I guess is the experience of all children, I was really not aware of racial differences and groups, except that. I began to understand and began to really focus with um, Joe Lewis, the championship, the heavyweight champion of the world for so many years in that era. And the fact that when he would fight a white opponent, all Harlem would rejoice when he won and all Harlem would weep when he lost. Mm. And I always knew when he won and he fought on Friday night, usually the fights back there were on Friday night. Mm. I always knew because on Sabbath, when the deacons were taking up the offerings, they'd be a little bit more sprightly and happy than when he lost. You could always tell by their, their smile that he had won. Now, I don't know how they knew, except that the walls were kind of thin in those apartments back there in Harlem. <laughs> but uh, I gradually absorbed the fact, and by the time that we moved to Los Angeles, when I was 11, the very year of, of the onslaught of World War II, mm. we got into LA in September, the war started in December, and I, I became quickly aware as a result of reports of black soldiers coming back from the war in Europe who were being hanged and shot and stoned and rejected, some of them shot and killed in their uniform all over the South. Wow. These, the, and I, it, it, <laughs> it really affected me. Mm -hmm. And I, by being, by virtue of my loving to read papers, I'm still a newspaper addict. I like to hear, you know, the, 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 the channels on TV, but I love to read editorials. And I would read editorials in newspapers and get different views. But back there, they had a lot of black uh, newspapers from the um, associated groupings of black newspaper authors and journals and they even emphasize this these atrocities and i developed a real attitude about race in america and i wondered on sabbath mornings when we stand up in church and sing we are not divided all one body we one in whatever one in charity how could people say that white or black how could anybody say we were one in hope and doctrine i think that's it one in charity mm. uh, and then when we had to salute the flag in church school where my mother kept us and they said put your hand over your heart one nation indivisible and i kept saying what liars what liars how can people say these things singing songs about uh, 
Jesus and, and, and claiming one in hope and charity. And I became very, very attracted toward the debates. And by the end of the war in 1946, 45, I was then 15 and 16, and I was well in, engrossed in the study of race relations in the States. Now, things weren't so bad in LA as in the South. And even back east, where I was born, because in the West, you had a lot of different races from the Pacific Isles, from uh, the, the Asian communities, and uh, of course, from the Latin American countries. So it wasn't just white and black as it had seemed to be in, in the east and in the south, where I lived for a short while. When my mother was there at age, when I was age seven, and she was studying to get a Bible certificate, a Bible worker certificate at, at Oakwood Junior College then. So things were a little better, but still they were, they were onerous in, in many places, even in the West. So all of this was a part of what uh, I observed. And in addition to that, I observed that when students left our little black church school on 41st in Naomi, I believe it was, in Los Angeles, and went to Linwood Academy, where there were just a few blacks at that time, they suffered indignities. And when they went to PUC, they, they had quotas at EMC, it was then, and, and all the other C's that our churches were running, all of our other union colleges, and all that affected me. Not, not that I wanted to not be an Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, but I just didn't understand. And uh, I found uh, myself engrossed in, in thought. And as I finished Oakwood, where it was a black school, black college, mm -hmm. uh, with some white teachers who everybody got along and got out into society, to really begin to work in the South, as I've mentioned, in Georgia and South Carolina in the early 50s, just as the civil rights movement was peaking or was beginning. And through from 54 to 68, all of my services were in the South, with the exception of the last few years when I was in Detroit, but even then, there were issues there. Um, my concepts for relating to this were formulated, and these are the things that I was finally able to write about as a result of going to the universities that you've mentioned and to give some um, theoretical as well as experienced notions as to how they affected the church and what needs to be done. Mm. You know, Dr. Rock, I was uh, I was talking with uh, Michael just you know before we had our interview, and I <laughs> I kind of mentioned I was like, you know, this this uh, this Dr. Rock just seems like a a uh, Forrest Gump of a person who's lived through so many decades and seen so much of this stuff firsthand. <laughs> you know, I I, no. I I'm impressed because no. you're not just talking about something that you've read about. You 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 watched this stuff like you were in the middle of it, and that's. That is a unique perspective. Um, I, I wondered 
How do you feel about the shift uh, that's taken place in the Adventist Church uh, with the membership, where we are suddenly not the majority membership in the NAD? Um, you know, the trend in growth has gone towards the global south. How do you think that shift in membership uh, percentages has impacted the racial divisions um, that were that you know you've been watching for all these decades? I think it's 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 positive, um, but I think that there's a danger, and uh, that danger is that same, the same danger that we see where black members in large numbers go into a white community or leave a black community and begin to attend church where there's a white Adventist congregation, they leave. They leave. And in a uh, wider view, a, a, a uh, macrocosm, I guess you'd call it, in England, where all the, all the West Indians, the, the islanders moved into London, you can hardly find white Adventists in, in London now. You can't find white Adventists in New York City. <laughs> you can't find them. And I, I hope that the result of this is not a diminishing in white Adventism. And I don't think it's racism altogether, or if at all, that the, the cultural shifts that occur in the communities of not only cities, but nations is real. And where one group of people come in, even black Americans, you can't find the same percentage of black Americans in New York City that you could have found when I was there because of the, of the Caribbean population that's come in. And mm -hmm. the Caribbean black is pushing the American black. <laughs> yeah. And it's, 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 I think it's unavoidable that uh, the prior community is going to diminish unless there's education and some, um, some intentionality with regard for understanding and attempts to hold things together. And then, let me tell you this and I'll let you go to the next question or build on this one, but I had to chair the committee at a at a general conference uh, session in Perth, not a general conference session, but a a uh, annual council, an annual council. You got it in Perth, Australia, in 1981. Was it? I'm not sure. And the brethren had studied black conferences in South Africa and decided that they wanted to merge the white and the black conferences. And <laughs> one of my black buddies, Maurice Battle, wonderful secretary, one of the secretaries of the general conference, was a member of that committee. I think he was the secretary of it. And uh, the queer thing happened, a, a queer thing or an unusual occurrence developed because I was chairing the report and I had to call on the committee that Maurice, my buddy, 
an African-American who's been a missionary, wonderful missionary in Africa for 20 or more years. And, you know, he, he's just a great fellow, <laughs> an experienced man. So I told Elder Falkenberg, the president at the time, I said, Bob, I cannot share this report because I do not believe that we ought to force the white conferences in South Africa to yoke up with the black conferences. And he was startled and everybody else was. So I said, I can't chair this meeting because I have an opinion and I'd like to express it. So the president of the church had to chair the meeting. I, I left the chair and gave it over to the president. He chaired the meeting and they took the vote as to how many people agreed that the white conferences in South Africa and the black local conferences should join up. Two people voted against it, myself and one white South African. <laughs> the other 598 people voted yes. And then I took the chair again. Now, uh, I was mistaken, I guess, or maybe, and I'm not so sure yet. Because you see, what happened was immediately white South Africans fled South Africa. They got on ships and sailed to New Zealand and Australia. Hmm. And there was an observable, palpable loss of white membership in South Africa as black South Africans took over. Now, I understand there are some cases where it's settled and it's okay, but that was my feeling and while that may never happen on the grander scene in North America, I would hope that if the Lord does not return soon, that 10, 20, 30 years from now, people won't have to take a microscope and look around and find white Seventh-day Adventist churches because of black overflow and Hispanic overflow and other groups will whose presence, for whatever reason, and I'm not saying it's racism necessarily, but cultural pull or push, for whatever reasons, the former majority dwindles or disappears into house churches, or they go to some exotic islands, or they move off to where the urban scene does not affect them. So, so you're saying committee decisions don't impact people's on-the-ground choices? <laughs> I would say that is true. Yeah, that that's, is true. That's fascinating because it kind of fits with the conclusion I was reading in your book. Uh, you, you really define the difference between racial pull and racial push. Um, right. You know, in that description of what happened there in South Africa, could you clarify what you kind of mean by that? Because I, I feel like it's core to what you're, uh, what, what, behind your decision anyway, why you voted against that. Yes. Uh, I believe that it is inevitable and unalterable that as cultural, massive cultural change occurs, the former group, the group that had precedence and power and position and numbers, as it gradually is either absorbed by um, the push, and that's not the best way to put it, but as gradually the difference in their comfort zone becomes more and more uncomfortable, this, this, this group that leaves is seeking 
to find a place where they can worship and live and enjoy life along the terms of their acculturation, their food, their music, their style, their dress, all of their folkways and mores and historical memories are perpetuated only if they leave. If they stay, they are uncomfortable or they are absorbed and they usually leave. And that's not, again, white and black, that's black and black. And not only black, uh, black Caribbean and black American, but, but black, uh, black Jamaicans and black Barbadians. It, it's, it's just the way it is. People of like culture find comfort in association, especially in worship, more in worship than any other place in life I have found. Two, place, two places that they find it, in eating and in worship. When I was president at Oakwood, a young lady came to me and said, Mr. President, it's a shame. All of these students from foreign lands, Africa and the West Indies, they eat on one side of the cafeteria and all of the American blacks eat on the other side of the cafeteria. And I said, oh, that's too bad. I, we're gonna do something about that. So I got up in chapel at the college at that time. And I said, look, folk, come on students, no more of this, all the Africans and all the Caribbeans on one side and all of you from America on the other. Let's mix it up. We don't have any special tables here. Everybody get together. And I went back the next day and they were pretty much trying to do that. But within a week, I went back and they had all forgotten about it. And I noticed that not only were all the Americans eating on one side of the cafeteria, but all the Americans from California were eating at a table and all the Americans who'd gone to Pine Forge were eating at a table. And all the Americans who were down from Georgia and Florida in that conference down there who knew each other. And I saw, I gave up. I said, look, why am I in here trying to force these people to be uncomfortable when they have, yeah, let's, let's, let's have occasions and let's structure events where people are asked, not made, but they, we, 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 we are very intentional about getting in the mix, but, but it's the way of nature. And Aristotle said it long time ago. It doesn't sound very Aristotelian, but he said, birds of a feather flock together. That's Aristotle. And he's right. He's right. Now, what can we do about it? We can be intentional and we can stop telling people we're going to integrate. <laughs> when I was in Florida, I wanted to get into the University of Miami. I couldn't. It was only after I left Florida and went to Detroit that I could begin my graduate studies. But I heard a group of white ladies. I looked out my window one day and they had a sign when there was this push for integration. This must have been about 1960 or 61, just before I left Miami to go to Detroit. And they were marching. The sign said, 2468, I don't want to integrate. 2468, I don't want to integrate. And I said, what a terrible thing for these mothers. But then I began to think about it later on. And I, have, I was invited to speak at Andrews at a black uh, 
History Month event, and that was my topic. Two, four, six, eight, I don't want to integrate. But then I began to explain that the understanding of integration as assimilation, and that's the problem, mm. is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a hurdle for both white and black. Neither group wants their culture assimilated. And integration, as we have now begun to use it, is a, is a misunderstanding of Martin Luther King's efforts when he talked about justice flowing down from mountains to molehills. And if you read his works enough, you discover that really what he was all about was desegregation. Desegregation, which says, let me eat where I wish and I want. Let me sleep where I wish and I want. Let me marry whom I wish and I want. Let me study where I wish and where. And not integration that says come together and we're going to homogenize these cultures. And that's what integration has come to mean. Homogenization and assimilation. And that's bad. And when people feel that, they don't want it. They move away. And if we only could settle for desegregation, people would begin to say, well, that's what I like, and that's fair. And if in desegregationist activities, people want to get married and assimilate or do whatever, that's fine. That's fine. But let's don't legislate it. And when I arrived at that opinion, a lot of my angst was resolved, and I was able to function with wonderful, wonderful friends. When I was chairing Loma Linda for 11 years, <laughs> I couldn't have asked for better reception. And even today, even today, 10, 11 years later, I am accepted and invited and treated by my friends there where I was the only black in a lot of different situations for 11 years. And I found out, and I'm happy to say, that when people relax mm. and realize that it is not homogenization or a forced assimilation that in, that integration should really mean, but rather a desegregated society, we last. And if our white and black Adventist communities and Hispanic and others will come to that realization, I believe we'll be all right. But if not, I fear that what we see has happened from 8% black membership in 44, when black conferences were established, to 33% today. If that keeps on, it's obvious that the results are not going to be positive for the white race or the black race or any other race among us. Yeah. So, Dr. Rock, uh, one of the thing, uh, one of the things that I know, you know, I, I have students, uh, they, they kind of wonder, did segregation really exist? And so when you share, you know, the 2468, uh, you know, uh, and people are like, well, surely that was, you know, that maybe that was in the world, that, but Adventists weren't actually, you know, segregated. Uh, but you experienced this. Could you just comment on that? I, I just have to do that for the sake of, of historical purposes here. Yes. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, let me go back a little bit. 
the, the pre-Adventist church. And I say pre-Adventist, I'm talking about Miller, William Miller, sure. 31, when he got his, his unction to, to preach and all, yeah. right up until 65, when we became a formal denomination, uh, was very anti-segregationist and anti-slavery. I mean, and you know, the, the works of, of uh, James White and the other brethren who spoke out so formidably against segregation and slavery. But when separate but equal was coined in 1896, mm -hmm. Ellen White, who was among those who just excoriated the brethren for their racism in the church, keeping blacks out, changed her mind. Well, didn't change her mind, but she changed her advice. And instead of doing what she had been doing, which was saying, you brethren shouldn't keep these recently freed slaves and their children out of your homes and churches, let them in. She saw that it wasn't working. When she got back from Australia in the middle or late 90s, she, she, she said, wait a minute, this, this isn't, you can't do it. They're going to hang you if you let these black people in. They'll hang them. Mm -hmm. So it's better to have the blacks work for the blacks and the whites work for the whites. And separate but equal force mm -hmm. what the white church endorsed, which was what was called gospel expediency. For the expediency of the gospel, you can't come to our schools. You can't come to our churches. And so as black membership increased from about 100 blacks in the church, Seventh-day Adventists, in 1900 to 1500 in 1909 to 3,500 in 1918 to 18,000 in 1944, by which time the plea of these black brethren to get into the church, which is what the first protest in the book illumines, had failed. They couldn't get in. And how could they get in? And I have to sympathize. Yeah, I think we all have to sympathize with white Adventists. I don't think they did enough to counter it, but it was against the law. It was against the law in America until 1954. It was against the law for whites and blacks to sleep in the same hotel, to ride in the same parts of the buses and trains and to eat at the same restaurants. And it was against the law. And here are white Adventists already exoriated because they, they were keeping the Sabbath. They didn't need this other blow of breaking the law. So they felt. Now I say, I, I believe they could have done more than they did, but they accepted it. And they labored under this law from 96, they were already under it since slavery until 96, by which time the South recovered and they were able to get separate but equal passed. And in 1954, when the government said, no more separate but equal, they annul the law. The Adventist church was quiet. They didn't say a thing. It was only 1965, 11 years later, that they said, now they made a couple of beautiful statements in between about we should love everybody and we're all gonna go to the same heaven, but they didn't attack, they didn't attack the problem. 
And it was only 11 years later, after separate equal was a no, and all the other major churches had said, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to open our doors. Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Church of God, everybody, all, everybody, just us, held on. Our ecclesiology would not allow us to include this danger of being repelled by some people. So we didn't say anything. Finally, we came out with a statement in 1965 that said we should open our schools and we should let anybody in. And you know, it didn't happen overnight. So the, the statement was made in 65, but it took decades, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And you ask me, yeah, my oldest daughter was born in Winter Park, Florida in 1955, the year after Separate Vehicles repealed, and she found out who the Adventist doctor was in town, the white Adventist doctor, and he refused her. Wow. Well, he didn't completely read. He told her, be sure to come in the back door. So she went back to the Yellow Pages and landed on a Catholic doctor, and he said, sure, you come over. I'll be glad to take care of you. 1960, I had an issue and I needed to get to the hospital in Miami, the Hialeah Hospital, I'll call the name. And they wouldn't let me come. I was pastoring three or four churches, Key West, Homestead, Miami. That was my district. And uh, they wouldn't let me, the pastor of the church, come in. Mm. 1966. 60, no, even later than that, because I went to the Southern Union. I went to the Southern Union in 67, and I left there in 60 and 70. But 1968, 69, I wanted to get our three daughters in the church school in Cascade Heights, Atlanta, and they said, no, I am working in the union office. I'm a union associate secretary of the ministerial department or association. And they said, no, and I'll never forget. They had me at a board meeting. And I'll never forget a lady whose name was Sister Loveless. I'll never forget that name. <laughs> Sister Loveless <laughs> asked me what I believed about interracial marriage. The school just went to the eighth grade. And she's asking me, what do I mean about interracial marriage? And the pastor, I won't call his name, but the pastor wrote me a letter. I still have copies of it. He said, Elder, we cannot accept your child this year, and we will not accept them next year either. <laughs> wow. I, I, that, I guess that's just, it's, it's yeah. shocking to me because I didn't grow up in it. You know, like so, me, it's, it's, it's so hard to kind of face it. In, in your book, you mentioned this statement that Ellen White made, you know, se separate but equal, separate places of worship. Uh, and it seems like people seized on that. I, as I was reading it, I felt like there was, it was a two-pronged problem. You know, one, it's a prevailing element of racism all the way through the 20th century. And it's also a hermeneutic issue where they place Ellen White's statement above a biblical principle. Like it's a forever mandate, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you feel like these kinds of statements and the hermeneutic issues behind it still affect the lines of racial separation in the church today? Um, whether it's, you know, oh. uh, do, do you feel like that same emphasis is there or have we kind of moved past that? 
I think we have. I People tell me there's racism in the church. The Adventists are racist. That's not so. The Adventist church is not a segregationist church. We are not segregated. Everything is open. Look, the, the president of the division is an African-American. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of African-Americans in the division administration. There are six, there are 14, I think there's still 14, divisions of the general conference and only six vice presidents. And one of those six is a black woman, if you please. <laughs> it, 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 it's just inconceivable that to me, who maybe because of what I've seen in the past, that people could look at the church today and say we are segregationists. We are not. There may be segregationists or racists here and there, but these are individuals. Yeah. It's not the church. These are not policies. These it's are not, not standards. Yeah. It's not even practice in a, in, in a major sense. As I say, there may be situations and persons, but it's not the position of the church. The church has spoken. The church has changed. It's a different body altogether. And my church is not segregationist. Not, I have not discovered it as the vice president. I did not discover it, discover it in my 11 years at Loma Linda, although some students complain about some teachers. <laughs> but the president, mm. the president of the school and the director of the hospital were genuine, open-minded, warm-hearted Christians. Dr. David Henshaw at the time and others, and Dr. Lynn Barron's, were just wonderful people when it came to racial things. And we did a lot of things together. And Dr. Hart, who's the president of the university now, is just a genuine brother. And mm. I, I, I will tell anybody and withstand anybody who says my church is racially negative or segregationist today. It is not so. Mm. There are some people. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, you, you found some dirt in heaven that's why <laughs> lucifer got started <laughs> right and, and you can say that because you've seen that you know you've seen what it was and just compare yeah. it to today that's that makes a huge difference you know mm -hmm. to see the contrast yeah and and coming uh full circle back to your book again you know uh you have a new study guide that's out which i just want to alert our readers or listeners to that uh, that's a great resource uh, and I, you know, I'd love to have you just comment for a second on, you know, is there anything in the book that you would change or, um, you know, tell it, tell us a little bit now that re, like almost most authors, you know, look back and say, well, I wish I added a section or maybe I changed this or that. I'm just kind of curious, um, here you've done all this work in your lifetime of experience. Um, how do you feel about it now? It's been a couple of years since your book came out. I can't think of any major emphasis, mm -hmm. but um, there, are, there are one or two accomplishments that um, were had by some outstanding persons mm. whose names I wish I had included. Yeah, sure. I, I, I would mention, um, but I, I don't think there's any major. Nothing major, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, I'm sure there must be because the book no, is uh, perfect. <laughs> oh, 
I wasn't awesome. saying that. I just, you know, was curious, you know, and, and before we got on for the podcast, you were telling me you're working on this Juneteenth uh, resource, this project for, I guess, for next year. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I'm always interested in what what's what's next. You're 91. You're a spry 91. Uh, and yet I hope and pray if the Lord doesn't come, I'm as active as you are. <laughs> yeah, you, you remind me, uh, I was on the golf course several years ago with uh, with some fellas and they, they saw me playing and one fellow said, Mr. How old are you? And I said, I'm 75. That was some time ago. He said, 75? And you're out here hitting a golf ball like that? I hope I can hit a golf ball like that when I'm 75. And his friend <laughs> said, hit a golf ball? I hope I'm alive when I'm 75. <laughs> so I, I, get I, kick, I get a big kick out of that. Um, oh, well, yeah, you, you're mentioning uh, next year. Mm -hmm. I hope I can see it happen. We are now already, we've engaged three writers and there's one, in fact, we've been getting uh -huh. four writers for next year's uh, Black History Month study guide. And yeah. that, the topic so far, it may be nuanced, is social justice and emancipation. Love it. And we'll be talking about A, uh, the first week, if I'll give you a head up, heads up, the first week will be God made us all equal. The second week, how if we were all made equal, then one whole continent of people, almost the whole continent of people become so susceptible to slavery. Mm. What happened that made them so vulnerable? Yeah. And uh, the third week will be the conditions of slavery. And mm. uh, the fourth week will be the consequences of the gospel in yeah. elevating the children of slavery mm. and the responsibility of those people to tell the good news to others. Wow. Well, you're kind of getting in the same track. My last question, actually, I was just curious as a historian, as an activist, you know, and as, as uh, an observer of history, where would you like to see some of the up and coming Adventist historians expand and explore um, in the coming decade on, on some of these uh, different topics? Yeah. Well, I, I think that the anthropologists could do us well uh, okay. or more by uh, doing and digging into and explaining origins and convincing people of all stripe that we were all created equal and that we are still equal in terms of capacity, but not opportunity. And, and that is what makes the difference in terms of consequences. And I like to tell people, especially, well, any audience that for which it's appropriate, that uh, those, those uh, writers uh, who stress the point of lesser lesser grades and consequences in standard exams, Princeton exams, and all sorts of scholastic uh, investigations that Blacks suffer are not the consequence of lesser ability 
but of sociological environmental needs and these are, are conditions and these mm. were and are borne out in the fact that white southerners in the same family score lower on these exams than do their brothers and sisters and cousins in the north so that the white southerners don't make the same standard of exam achievement as white northerners because while it may not be said too loudly there are more evidently institutions in the north and more opportunities especially in urban areas for white northerners in the same family to have a better preparation and it's that kind of understanding that needs to be said that will give courage to blacks who when we and in, in the hbcus i was president of oakwood for 14 years and i told students and i told the churches where i recruited yes we accept blacks with a 1.9 gpa but we don't graduate them with a 1.9 gpa mm, i love that yes they come in with a lesser preparation not a lesser capacity or ability but they've had a lesser environment they haven't had parents who could help them they haven't had mothers and fathers many cases fathers at all who were there and mm. they come to college without the the accoutrements without without the, the 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 support and without even the finance and they are troubled and they've had all kinds of 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 situations in the in the high schools in their communities where even some of those teachers weren't properly prepared so there has to be a building up and a preparing them to stand up and pass the standards you can't lower the examinations but you have to prepare them and when this is done they come through with flying colors and that's um, stated over and over again so it's that kind of conversation that black young people need to encourage them and it's that kind of conversation that others in the country need to be able to have an aha moment mm. <laughs> to understand why uh the scoring is often as it is yeah well, uh, Dr. Rock, this has been just an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, opportunity to just hear you share your experience from your heart and your passion. A any final words? You know, we've been asking a lot of questions, but are there any, you know, this is a podcast about Adventist history uh, that, that you just, that maybe we didn't ask you, but that you'd like to just share with us before we wrap up. Only that um, you took a chance asking me to speak without studying the questions and writing out the answers so you got it straight from the heart absolutely <laughs> one and number two uh yeah i think it would be a wonderful thing if we could all just relax mm. we could relax mm. and and don't attribute every hurt or every misunderstanding to racism yeah but try to try to get into more of an appreciation for culture yes i am a black american but i've been around enough white adventists mm -hmm. 
in my work as a vice president in particular, and in my work in the Southern Union for three years, where I had to visit all churches to become comfortable with some music that I might not have appreciated before I had that introduction. So I am comfortable. Uh, I, I, I spoke at a certain academy, and I won't name that academy, but it, when I finished the sermon that Sabbath of their camp meeting, everybody was passing the door. Oh, elder, we're glad to have you. Glad what a one of them. And one little freckle-faced girl, white young girl, and it was a white academy, looked up at me and said, Mister, why do you talk so loud? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to laugh. I said, yeah, she's telling the truth. <laughs> what she experienced was a sermon from a pastor who had a style that was different. Yeah. And, and, and that's just the way it is. And if we can ever become comfortable with who we are and through the years become adjusted to one another and to live and let live and to talk about desegregation and stop all this forced integration. Just be easy with it. Open up everything. Let everybody live and let live and love the Lord. We'll be a whole lot closer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the love foundation that undergirds what we're going to need to finish be a part of the finishing of the work of God. Mm -hmm. I love that final thought, Dr. Rock. Thank you so much for that. It's, it's, it's very similar to what you even said at the end of your book, where you said the church is more, more like a flower garden than a melting pot. There you are. I I, I just love that illustration. I thought it made super, super. I believe you read the book. You read. I I did. And it's a great book. I can't recommend it enough to all of our listeners out there. Dr. Rock, thank you again for being such a, a, a generous interviewee. Uh, like you said, having no, no idea what questions were coming at you, uh, a, a depth of knowledge and experience is uh, just something that we as, as, as podcast hosts and historians, we just love it. So thank you again for being a, a guest on our podcast. Thank you. And everybody, uh, listeners out there, thanks again for tuning in. We've got lots more of this stuff coming up here. If you're interested in the book, uh, we've got some links up on our site. And I think we uh, have a one p- final parting thought from Dr. Rock here. The book can be gotten from Amazon or from Andrews Press, where it was published. Perfect. Double up there. You've got a couple of different options. I think they've even got it as an ebook option on there. If I if I that's right on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So lots of different options to get it. Can't recommend it enough. Again, thanks again, listeners. Uh, appreciate it, and thanks for joining us on this latest episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. And Jesus Himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. God, 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 God. He does not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by